Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we are your people. And Father, we are thankful for the gospel. We're thankful, Lord, that you came down from heaven. That you lived a life that we couldn't live. And you died the death that we deserve to die. And you rose again victorious over the grave. Lord Jesus, you are our Savior. You have brought us into a relationship with God, a relationship that satisfies us like nothing else can. In fact, Lord, in your presence, we find that this is what we were made for. To worship you, to glorify you, to find our fulfillment and our contentment in you. So, Lord, we come with our empty buckets this morning. And, Lord, we ask that you fill them up. Lord, give us a passion and a zeal. And, Lord, set our hearts on fire for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are embarking, starting this morning, on an eight-week uh, series on missions and on the mission of the church. Now let me say this, when you hear missions, if you're like me, you, you generally think international missions. That's not what we're talking about this entire time. We're not preaching, you know, on how we need to be, you know, now that's part of it. We do need to be sending uh, missionaries. We do need to be involved in the international scene. But it's just a simple question of what are we here for? What is our mission? It's the new year. People start thinking about resolutions. They think about purpose. And, and the question we as a church have to ask ourselves is what on earth are we here for? What is our mission now, when we start thinking about that, we have to realize that we have to start with God. We have to start with our view of God because if we don't have a proper understanding of who God is, we're going to get the question wrong about what we're here to do. And I, I, I'll give you some examples. A lot of times, if you have the wrong view of God, you may be thinking, poor little God, he needs me to come and, and bring him some worshipers. He can't do it on his own. He needs us to do it for him. Or you might be kind of, you may have the secular view, and this is what a lot of people outside the church have, that it is our business as a church to sell religion. That we're all salesmen. We're all selling religion. And, and the whole point is for us to bring more people in on it so that we can perpetuate our organization called church. When I was in North Carolina and working up there while in seminary, uh, I was working in the business world and, and doing quite well there. And my boss, when I, when I started telling him that my heart was to go back into church ministry and my heart was to, to be a pastor, his question to me, now he's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, his question is, well, is there any money in religion? Are, 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 people, are people really going, flocking to that? And he strikes right at the heart of it. His view of God shapes what he thinks the church ought to be doing. Or maybe your view of God could be that God is kind of just sitting down in his lazy boy recliner telling us, his people, you go tell them, you go do this, you go do that. But he's not willing to get up and do it himself. Church, listen, 
our view of God is going to impact how we look at what we are put here to do. And what we're going to see is that God is not just sitting back passively. God is actively on a mission. And it ultimately all comes down to how do you read your Bible? Because if you read your Bible and you just see our mission and and the mission of God is like an add-on to it, then of course you're going to come away thinking, well, our mission is just, you know, it's nice if we do this. But what we're going to see this morning and I hope over the next eight weeks, is we're going to see that the mission is not just an add-on to the Bible, but it's the foundation of the Bible. And the main idea that we're looking at this morning is that God is on mission, and so therefore we are too. And His mission, as we're going to see, and I want you to, I want you to get this, His mission is for the entire earth Not just one group of people, for the entire earth to be filled with people who know Him and worship Him. We see this in several parts. And so this morning we're going to tell a story. We're going to look at the storyline and we're going to put it like many movies do in Acts. And Act 1 being creation. God creates and pursues. God creates and pursues. And of course we all know the story, don't we? In six days, God creates the heavens and the earth. God uh, creates everything that exists. And if you look with me in in Genesis 1.28, we see what God tells the, the first man and the first woman to do. This is what He says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It was God's design from the beginning. Listen, it was God's design from the beginning that mankind not just clump up in one space, but God's design was for people to fill the entire earth. Why is that important? It's important because we see even here in creation, before sin entered, before the fall happened, we see that it was God's intention for the whole earth to be filled with worshipers. With people who know Him. And as we go on, we see, of course, something terrible happening to God's creation. We see the fall happening. Where the serpent comes and questions God's goodness. God said, you can eat from any tree, but there's this one tree that I don't want you to eat from. You eat from it and you will die. And then, of course, the serpent slithers up or walks up and says, did God really say that? Did God really say? And Adam and Eve ate from it. And the reason they did it, don't miss this, the reason they did it is because they believed the serpent and they believed that God truly did not have their best interest at heart. They thought, you know, I I know what's best for me. And in that moment, the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they committed idolatry they basically said i'm the center of it all i'm not going to worship and serve and glorify god i'm going to worship and glorify myself and we see what happens but notice something that we often leave out the fall is not the end of the story is it 
God pursues His people. And we can see this as you turn over to the next page, or, or maybe a couple pages in your Bible, to, to Genesis 3, we start to see God pursuing. Despite rebellion, God pursued them. And, and we see God coming and asking a question of Adam. After they sinned, after they rebelled, God comes and says, Adam, where are you? Now, I just want to point out, God knows everything. Right? God knows. God already knew what Adam had done. God already knew where Adam was. He didn't have to go and say, Adam, where are you? He knows exactly where he is. But why is it that God is saying, Adam, where are you? It's because God is pursuing him. God is pursuing him. And then as God addresses their rebellion, as he addresses their sin, he makes a promise in verse 15 that echoes throughout the pages of Scripture. And the promise is this, and it's his curse toward the serpent. He says, I'm going to put enmity. So this is 315. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is promising to fix the situation right here in the very beginning. And this is what God is saying. Hey, you're going, there's this offspring, this seed of of the woman that's going to come. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. He's going to redeem. He's going to reverse the effects of what's happening here. He's going to save you from your rebellion. But also notice, at this very beginning, when we tell this story to our kids, we just usually say, well, God cursed the man and the woman, and that's why childbearing is so, uh, that's why the, it's so painful. That's why men have to work so hard. The toil of the ground is because God cursed them. But notice here in Genesis 3, never does it say God cursed the man or the woman. The only thing that God curses here is He curses the serpent and He curses the ground. Yeah, childbirth is going to be painful, He says to the woman. And yeah, Adam, you're going to have to work with the toils and sweat of your brow to to get food. But He never says, I curse you. Why is that important? Because even here, God is on a mission to rescue them. Even here, God is trying to save them. And let me just tell you here today, our God is a pursuing God. You might be here this morning, and you might be far from God. You might be so far from God, you think, well, God will never take me. I've strayed too far. But no, let me tell you, God is pursuing you here this morning. And if you turn to Him, He will have you. He's not going to turn you away. He's going to take you right where you are. He is a pursuing God. And so we see, even at the beginning, Act 1, Scene 1, God creates and pursues, and He is on a mission to fill the earth with worshipers. And he will not even let rebellion and sin and the fall stop that from happening. Act 2, if you will. God calls a people to himself. The story progresses. And the world at this time was filled with lostness and polytheism. 
Basically, the world continued to spiral out of control into its sin and its rebellion. And it was just full of lostness. And in this lostness, God takes a man and, and, and brings him to the knowledge of himself and brings him to himself. And the man is Abraham. And of course, at the time, his name was Abram. His name was changed by God later. And Abraham, God called him to get up from his hometown of Ur and move to the opposite end of Abraham's known world. Basically, he's saying, I want you to get up out of everything that you know and love and hold dear, and you're going to go to the other side of the world to a land that I'm going to give you. And the promise that he makes to Abraham, and this is in Genesis chapter 12, The promise that he, he makes to Abraham is he says in 12.2, I will make you a great nation. Basically, Abraham, I'm going to take your descendants and make them great. I'm going to make you a great nation and bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. But notice what he says next. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's purpose in calling Abraham, in calling Israel, their forefather, to himself, and setting a people aside for himself, he, he did that so that they could be a blessing, so that they could extend his salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, God, we see here, is not just interested in one group of people, one ethnic group worshiping him. He's interested in using that ethnic group, that people, so that the entire earth may be blessed and know him and come to salvation. He's on mission. He's pursuing his purpose. And ultimately, his purpose is to save the world. And of course, God's people, we know the rest of the story. They're taken into slavery in Egypt. But God rescues them and presses forward with His mission. God establishes the people into a kingdom. We know that you know, they wandered in the wilderness. They didn't get to get to the land. They wandered for 40 years. And finally, finally Joshua brought them into the land. They conquered the people that were there. And finally, it looks like all is well. God gave them the land that, that He promised them. He established a kingdom. Eventually gave them a king. And they had bad kings and rebelled. And basically, to, to shorten a long period of time, any time the people forsook God and His mission, they were conquered by other nations. But through all of this, during all of these years, God is constantly working in the details to bring about His purpose. That the nations might know Him. Which brings us to Act 3. God works through His people. God works through His people. And in, in His working through His people, we start to see that God has a universal plan for salvation. In other words, it's not just for this group of people, it's for the entire earth. We start seeing that, uh, for instance, God allows outsiders to come into Israel, to come into the community. And 
in addition to that, God tells Israel that when these guys come in, you're to love them as you love yourself. The, the traveler, the foreigner, you're to treat them with great hospitality and great love. Because God loves the foreigner. He loves the sojourner. It goes on and it, you know, God says not only are foreigners allowed, but they were allowed and expected when they were there to worship at the temple. In other words, God wasn't just setting aside a people, but He was intending to bless the nations. He was intending to save the entire earth. And then we get to the Psalms and we see in the Psalms that it's not just about this group of people, it's about the world knowing God. In Psalm 66 it says, Shout for joy, all the earth. All the earth worships you and sings praise to you. They sing praises to your name. Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. Why? So that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 98 continues this idea. It says, The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed righteousness in the sight of the nations. That is, the whole world. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. He's not just interested in Israel or a certain group of people. He wants it going to the world. He is on mission. And we see in the prophets even the same idea. Joel 2, the the prophet Joel records the words of the Lord and says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. God has the world in view. God wants to save the world. But not only does God work out the details of His mission for saving the world, but He promises that He promises the one who's going to come and fulfill it, the Messiah, the promised one. He says that this Messiah is going to come and establish justice, not just in His people, but over the whole earth. He says that this Messiah is going to come and suffer for His people. He's going to be a sacrifice for sin. But we also see in Isaiah 49 that the servant is not just going to die for the people, but he's going to be a light for the nations, a light for the world, so that the whole world would see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 49, 6 says, God says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? This is what he says of the Messiah. I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God is working in the details, showing us that he is on a mission to save the entire world. And of course, He ultimately brings that Messiah to the earth. And we later see that He is God in the flesh. And this Messiah comes and He fulfills this because He lives the life that humanity should have but couldn't live because of our sin. And He died the death that we deserved. 
He rose again showing that He is who He says He is, that He is the Messiah, that He is God. And let me tell you, He restores sinners into a right relationship with God. He basically offers joy, fullness of joy. God is fulfilling His mission. And that's Act 4. God fulfills His mission. You know, when it, comes with, when it comes to movies and plot lines, I'm a movie buff. It's usually when you see the end of the movie that you know what the plot is all about. In fact, if you just watch a part of a movie, you may think you have it figured out until you see the end. And then all of a sudden, it all just starts coming together for you. It starts all, all the pieces start fitting together. And it's the same with this story that we're looking at this morning. With God's mission to save the world. It's not until we see the end of the story that it all starts making sense. That it all gets pulled together. And the end of the story is, of course, in Revelation. And this is what the Apostle John records. He, he sees a vision. He sees what it's going to be like at the end of history. At the end of the days. And in Revelation 7, this is what John says he saw. He says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What we just read there is that people don't miss it. Don't miss the, the mission of God here. People from every tribe and tongue and nation will be there at the end. In other words, what God started off doing in Genesis chapter 1, filling the earth with worshipers, and what he picked up doing after the fall, promising restoration and pursuing his people. What he said he was going to do when he says, in you, the, the, the nations, the whole earth will be blessed. Finds its fulfillment at the end when God brings it all to completion and there is someone from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping at his throne. What God started, he will finish. And we see at the end that God is on a mission. A mission that He's not sitting back and passively watching happen. A mission that He is actively engaged in. That He's been engaged in since the very beginning. It's not just an add-on. It's not like, well, Jesus came, so now all of a sudden we have the Great Commission. This is something that God has been doing from the beginning. From the very beginning. And He will complete it. He will fulfill it. And so, the question now comes for us. The question comes for us to rightfully see God. To rightfully see God. That He is moving in a, dire in a direction. He is moving onward. He is moving forward. And so what this means is 
that his heart is for the world to know him. And he is advancing his kingdom. He is advancing his gospel throughout the world. And so we should not think of ourselves too highly. We shouldn't think that, oh, well, God needs us. Boy, if, I didn't, if we didn't get on mission, the gospel would just grind to a halt. No. God is advancing His gospel. God is the one bringing uh, to, to completion His mission. But the question for us, the question for us, the question of the hour, is if, if that is the heartbeat of God, if God is on a mission, church, will we join Him? No, He doesn't need us. But He invites us on His mission. And, and if, if what we're seeing here is true, if God is really on this mission, and if His heartbeat is to glorify Himself through saving sinners throughout the entire world, Are we going to join in that mission or are we going to ignore the heart of our God? If God came down from heaven and if He's been on mission from the beginning and if He came down from heaven, why is it that we have a hard time walking across the street to tell our neighbors about Jesus? If He did all of this and if He is really on this grand mission, why is it so hard for us to walk next door? Why is it so hard for us to open our mouths? If He is moving onward, why is it that we as His people aren't moving onward with Him? We, we, we basically don't share the Gospel with people. We don't reach out to people. We don't reach out in the hunting club. We don't reach out as we go to our, our, our work, our place of employment. We don't reach out to people. We don't have conversations with people. But if God is on a mission, we should be as well. And not just here in our local area, but it also has implications for missions. If God's heart is for the nations then how is it that we can say that we're just going to, let, we're going to let the gospel sit right here in Florine and Mount Carmel and we're not going to really worry about getting it outside of our country and outside to people who've never heard it? I've heard it before, and, and it's probably, honestly, it's, it's probably many of you think this way. I've heard it so many times people say, well, and I struggle with this as well, why would we send missionaries overseas when we have so much lostness here? My answer is simply because that's where the heart of God is. And it's not an either or question. It's not a, well, we either have to do evangelism here or we have to send missionaries and we have to support our international work. We, we treat it like it's, well, we've got to pick one. Can't do both, you just got to pick one. But when we truly understand, listen to me, when we truly understand the heart of God, the mission of God, it's not just going to be, well, I'm going to do one or the other. It's no, I'm going to be very active where I am right now. God has put me here so that I can point others to Him. And I'm going to do everything that I can to support the mission work. As the missionaries are, are basically going down into the pit, I'm going to stand at the top and I'm going to hold the rope. 
I'm going to give generously to it. I'm going to pray without ceasing for the mission. Because ultimately, the gospel is so great. And our God is so worthy. He's worthy not just for Mount Carmel to worship Him. We could get every person in Mount Carmel and in Florine saved. But God is still even more worthy to have more people worship Him. And so we must march on with the mission. We must join Him as He is making His fame and His name known in the earth. The main idea, what I want us to walk away with this morning, if you don't get anything else, we are on mission because God is on mission. And God's mission is to fill the earth with people who know Him by saving sinners, by redeeming us from what we truly deserve. We see this happening in God's creation and pursuit of mankind. We see it in God calling a people to Himself to bless the whole world. We see it in God rescuing people and working in the details in His people and promising to fulfill it and send the Messiah. And ultimately, we see God's mission most clearly when we look at Christ and realize that the Messiah did come. And that at the end, people from everywhere, all over the world, will be saved. This morning, as we look at God's Word, how dare we walk away from it and not apply it and not respond to it? Maybe if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you talk, you know, preacher, you're talking a lot about mission and, and what, what the church is here for, but I'm not a Christian, I'm not a part of the church. And if that's you, let me just say this to you directly. You need to realize that God is pursuing you. You may have just walked in here this morning thinking, well, I'm just going to go to church to make such and such happy, or I'm going to go to church because it's a good thing to do. But let me tell you, you walked in this place this morning, and I'm here to tell you that God is pursuing you. God will have you. He wants a relationship with you. Come to know Him by giving your life to Christ. And in just a moment when we sing... You know, I, I encourage you to come down front and, and put you know, an action to what is going on internally. But also I would say this, that if you're like, I'm not going to walk in front of all these people. Come find me. Come ask questions. In the bulletin, the program you had, there's my number in there, my email, the office hours. I'm usually here during those office hours. Come and find me and talk to me and ask questions and press in. But for the rest of us here, Church, let me say this. We should respond by commit, committing to pray over the next eight weeks for God to make us a church on a mission. Our fervent prayer. Will you commit with me to pray for that? We also need to join God and commit to telling others in our neighborhood about Him. As you go hunting, as you go to the grocery store, as you go to work, as you go and do the things that you do, have intentional conversations with people so that you can share the gospel with them, so that you can share Christ with them. 
And finally, I would encourage you to respond in supporting the global mission. Not just what's going on here, but support the global mission by giving generously, by praying, by learning about what's going on, by even going. And I'm just going to tell you, my prayer for this church, this is kind of bold, but I pray that God would raise up in our very church a missionary who feels called to go overseas. You think, well, this is just a, this is a small country church. We don't do those kind of things here. I pray that God would break out of the mold that we put Him in and that He would call somebody here to do that. We must respond to God's Word. In the words of an old hymn, our prayer should be, Set my soul afire, Lord. Set my soul afire. Give, me, give to me a passion. Set my soul afire, Lord, for the lost in sin. Give to me a passion as I seek to win. Help me not to falter. Never let me fail. Fill me with Thy Spirit. And let Thy will prevail. Set my soul afire, Lord. Set my soul afire. Make my life a witness of Your saving power. Many grope in darkness waiting for Thy Word. Set my soul afire, Lord. Set my soul afire. And Lord, this morning we pray that You would do it. Lord, You can do more in an instant in our church than we could do in a lifetime of working. Lord, center us on Your mission. Make us a people who are passionate about sharing the Gospel. And Lord, we will... We will live lives on mission. But Lord, help us to do that. Give us a passion. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?